If you have your scriptures with you, turn in them to uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 17. We're going to read a portion of scripture that uh, has to do with uh, the laws that concern the kings of Israel. And uh, we'll uh, begin by uh, uh, looking at that passage, and then I'll, I'll make uh, some points about it. So now if you have your scriptures, we're going to read uh, chapter 17, uh, starting in verse 14. If you don't have your Bible with you, it's printed in your bulletin, and so you can follow along uh, there. So now hear, uh, hear God's word. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only you must not acquire, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, You shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and in doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. This is the word of the Lord. You know, the idea of a king born in a, a manger, in humble circumstances, a peasant, and then rising to the heights of power, we love those stories. You think uh, uh, of the King Arthur, the King Arthur legend, or Aladdin, uh, or a peasant girl that becomes a princess like Cinderella, or even historically, if you think in terms of uh, uh, someone like uh, Abraham Lincoln, or even in modern times, regardless of your politics, we have uh, men who have risen from very humble circumstances like uh, Ronald Reagan or Barack Obama uh, or different ones. And in sports, those of you that are sports fans, you know how uh, we like to root for the underdog, uh, uh, here in El Paso, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Uh, the <laughs> 1966, uh, the glorious uh, uh, miners. And so, uh, you know, we, we love those stories. We love to hear uh, the stories uh, of an underdog. The Christmas narrative, on the other hand, is a little troubling because unless you read it all the way to the end, and I mean beyond just the resurrection, because the resurrection is an article of faith. We can't prove the resurrection. 
I would love to be able to prove it, but think about it. If Jesus had exploded out of the grave and, and burst into a, a big cloud burst of fireworks, uh, people would have simply believed because they were terrified. But today, for us to believe is an article of faith. We have to trust that what God has told us is true. Now, is there evidence for it? Of course there is. In the past weeks, we've been talking about Jesus as our Redeemer, the judge of all the earth, who then comes and takes judgment on himself. And we've looked at Jesus, our prophet. These are from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, if you wonder. The one who speaks the word and is the word. But like Moses, he interposes himself on Mount, si- on Mount Sinai to take the sins of the people for making a golden calf. Or our priest, who is the one who offers himself and both is the sacrifice. And today we're going to talk about his King, his kingship, and so uh, uh, with that, let me uh, let me let me say a few things about it that I think will be helpful to you. Um, having some issues with my computer, so can we pause? It's okay. This is why you should never trust Steve Jobs, <laughs> even though he is long gone. He still comes back, and. Uh, Especially for Christians, he loves to uh, torment Christians, as you can imagine. But we've just cast him out. You probably wonder why I use a computer anyway and don't just print my sermons. Do any of you wonder about that? I'm sure you spend an inordinate amount of time worrying about why I do that. And the reason is quite simple, because I can't see paper anymore. I have to, the screen is helping at my advanced uh, age. So, <laughs> so we're going to talk about the kingship. Thanks for being patient with me. Uh, look, we are very familiar with democracy or Republican government, representative government, and we're all very comfortable with it. In the modern day, uh, we, we love that. We love the idea of being able to elect our officials, and we have a certain amount of confidence if we elect the right ones. You know, things will go well. But understand this, that the way the Bible describes government, from the very beginning, it started with the idea of a monarchy. Not a constitutional monarchy, but a benevolent monarchy by an absolute king, a monarch. Did you know today, and this is just, you can find this, I found it by Google, it's not because I'm so... Brilliant, although I would love for you to think that. Uh, Today there are 43 constitutional monarchies that exist in the world. Many of them with extensive power. So they're kings and they're princes and queens and kings and all that. They have a lot of power. But did you know there are seven absolute monarchies that still exist in the world today? Uh, Brunei. I'm sure some of you are familiar with this little tiny nation that's in the north of Borneo that's surrounded by the rest of uh, Sarawak uh, on the island in Malaysia. Then there are the 
the, the notorious ones that we hear about all the time in the news, these Islamic countries, Oman, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. I just found out, I knew this, but I didn't really know it. The United Arab Emirates the, the, are made up of seven, a federation of seven emirates. You probably know all this, uh, Matt, already. And the two, we're, we're most familiar with places like Dubai or Abu Dhabi and, and that kind of thing. There's also one in Africa, Swaziland. That's an absolute monarchy. And then the one that surprised me the most is Vatican City. It's an absolute monarchy, and guess who rules it with an iron fist? Pope Francis. Yeah, I didn't know that. Of course, Japan, many of you may know, Japan is the oldest monarchy, dating back to 660 B.C., the Yamato family or dynasty, uh, and uh, they, they uh, claim that going back to that time. The one in Cambodia, Queen Soma, first century. And then the ones that we're also very familiar with, uh, the uh, European monarchies, uh, uh, England and Scotland, the Stuart clan uh, joined up. Uh, I can't give you all the history. I'd love to, but I didn't have enough time to spend with Google. Uh, Spain, the 10th century, Norway, the ninth century. So here's what I'm going to ask, and here's what I want us to think about, because we are celebrating a sacred day in the history of the Christian calendar, and that is the time of the birth of our King. And it's tough, I think, for people in the Enlightenment, uh, people who think in terms of representative government, to think in terms of an absolute sovereign, someone that rules. And His word is law, and there's no getting around it. So, we'll ask these questions real quickly. Is monarchy inherently bad? Is it inherently bad? Secondly, what are the problems with monarchy? And finally, we'll talk a little bit about the king or the monarch that uh, God chooses. So, is monarchy inherently bad? I think if you went out on the streets of El Paso or New York City or Los Angeles or anywhere in the Midwest, no matter where you go, if you were to ask somebody, is an absolute monarchy itself evil? Most people, even those that live under a monarchy, would say, yeah, they, I mean, look at the history of the world. They're bad. And representative government is much better. But what does the Bible tell us? Well, the garden, the the narrative from the garden in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 set up the history of a monarchy. In Genesis 3, the Lord is walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and He's calling out to His servants, Adam and Eve, where are you? Because that's what kings in the ancient Near East would do. They would meet with their stewards, with their ministers, with their kings and queens. In the cool of the day, they would get together and do business. They would talk about the kingdom and they were talking in terms of their under-shepherds or their under-rulers. And that historic pattern is carried out in the book of Genesis. If you just, on the very surface reading, in Genesis chapter 10, you remember the Tower of Babel is being built. Well, the guy that was building Babel, his name was Nimrod. And it actually calls him a mighty man and uses the word kingdom describing what he was doing in 
chapter 10. And then Israel, at Mount Sinai, chapter 33 of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is blessing the people, and in that blessing, he reminds them that at Mount Sinai, they had agreed to make God Almighty, Yahweh, their king. He reminds them of that in his final blessing before he dies. And then in the passage that I read this morning, he gives them a law here in chapter 17 about what to do when they do decide to have a king. I think we are under the assumption, particularly from 1 Samuel, where they reject God as being their king and they want a king like the other nations, that he never wanted them to have a king. And that is simply not the case. If you read the narratives, if you read them carefully and just take them at face value, what God was telling them from the very beginning is, I'm your king, and when the time comes, listen, when the time is right, I will give you a king, and he'll be one that I choose and not you choose. The problem is that in 1 Samuel, it was a God that they chose. And if you know the history, who did they choose? They chose Saul, right? Why did they choose Saul? Well, he came from a very dignified family, a family that was, they were property owners, they were well-to-do, and Saul himself was a very attractive man. He was a mighty man. The Bible actually calls him a mighty man. And he was head and shoulders taller than everybody else. Who wouldn't want that guy as your king? Who wouldn't want Arnold Schwarzenegger to be your king? I can see people going, no, no, no. <laughs> okay. Look, monarchy was not bad. God set it up in the Bible. He, he condoned it. He even gave them instructions on how to choose their king. He told them all about it. What goes wrong? Why is it that if we go out and we ask people, what about it? How about a monarchy? Which is basically a dictatorship. How about that? I mean, we start to break out in hives, right? We don't like that idea. Bad idea. Why? Because we have thousands and thousands of recorded years of history that tell us one thing and one thing only about monarchs and people that have absolute power. What is that? They always abuse their power. How do they get power? How do you think these people got power in the first place going back to prehistoric times when there were just cavemen running away? How did the guy become chief of his tribe? He was bigger and more brutish or smarter or more intelligent or whatever it was that he had a bigger club, he had a bigger stick, he had a batter set of wolves that followed him that he had tamed. Whatever the case was, it was raw Brute strength, military prowess, money, alliances. If the person just happened to be talented enough that he could gather and, and schmooze people. If he was a good lobbyist. Then he had power and he could become king. That's how they got power. And in fact, if you see where I'm going, that's how people get power today. Yes, you all know that. How do they keep power? The way they kept power then as now, you don't have to read your Bible, just read history, world history, any history, 
any country makes no difference. How do they keep power? They do it by what is called syncretism. Syncretism is a fancy word for just kind of getting everybody together and to agree on certain things, primarily things that they, the ones with power, think they should agree on, and then enforcing that. Enforcing that power through social, cultural accommodation. In other words, the powerful, the king, would adopt, very often adopt the cultures that they overthrew. If you read the history of uh, Alexander the Great, one of the things that made Alexander great was that he went and he conquered a country and what did he do with all their leaders? He was not like the Queen of Hearts, off with their head. No, he made them get on their knees and swear allegiance to him and then he left them in place. He let them continue to lead. But now they were in what is called a vassal relationship with the suzerain or the king. The great king, Alexander, made vassals of the lesser kings and they had to swear allegiance. And Alexander and these other great ancient kings would say, if you don't abide by my rules, then what would happen? Off with your head then it's the queen of hearts. And this is how they ruled. This is how these empires became so huge that they they covered the earth. And almost every ancient empire did that through syncretism, social, cultural, and listen to this, cultic, cultic accommodation. Cultic is just a word that means worship. They would go in and what would they do? What did the Greeks do with the Roman? What did the Romans do with the Greek gods? They just appropriated them to themselves. Renamed them sometimes. Maybe they didn't even rename them. They just took them on. And every culture, almost anywhere you go in the world or the world history, you find this cultic accommodation that goes right along with Cultural accommodation, social, you know, keep your customs, keep your, and your gods, we take them. We will love your gods. You can have your temples, you can have your churches, you can have your synagogues, you can have your mosques. Everything's great. Everybody just keep it in your private sector. Don't bother us with it, and all will be well. Yes, that's how they kept power. And then how did they pass along their power? Without an exception, how, how is it that the Yamato dynasty exists today? 660 B.C. Now, 600 A.D., they can trace genealogically back to 600 A.D., but by legend and by tradition, they go back to 660 B.C. How do you go back that far? I barely know my parents, and they're here today. I mean, think about it, folks. How do they pass along that kind of power? You already know the answer. Heredity. Ethnicity. You're born the son of the king. Guess what your destiny is? To be the king. 
There's a movie out right now uh, that's supposed to be really great. I don't know. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, it's called Mary, uh, is it, was it Mary, Queen of Scots. Has anyone seen it? No? Nor should you admit it in church anyway that you've been to the movies because movies, okay. How did they pass along their power without exception? Marital arrangements, children, and extended family. In other words, they didn't, look, they didn't have hundreds of wives because they were just sexual maniacs. They could have, that, that they could have without a problem. They can have anybody they want. The king, he can have anybody he wants. All he has to do is pick up the phone and say, send over number 32 today. Right? I can have all the women I want. But why did they have all these wives and children and keep track of them? Because they gave them power. Having lots of children meant that every one of their kids got a little piece of land. So after a while, who, who owns all the land? The Isaac family. <laughs> who owns the banks? The Isaac family. Who owns the, who owns the trucking company? Who owns the, who's the doctor? Who's the pediatrician in town? Dr. Isaac. You get the picture, right? That's how they passed it along. And that's what a great king did. He had lots of children, especially lots of sons. In the ancient Near East, had to be a boy. Even today, has to be a boy, right? Moses paints a picture of a monarchy that is completely off the charts. This would, we think, what would have shocked people in the, reading their Old Testament, what would have shocked the ancient people? Abraham offering Isaac up on Mount Moriah wouldn't have shocked anybody because they were doing that all the time. That wouldn't have raised an eyebrow. What would have raised an eyebrow on Mount Moriah was the fact that God stepped in and stopped it. That would have raised an eyebrow. What would have, what would have raised an eyebrow about this story? Not the fact that God chooses, because in the ancient Near East, that was one of the claims of the monarchs. I'm the Son of God. God chose me. He didn't choose you. Therefore, you owe me allegiance. That's what a Son of God was. That's what the pharaohs were. That's what Nebuchadnezzar was. You can, you can find the, the carvings today of, the, of, of God, but I'll bail holding the king by his hair. And the inscription is, Son of God, my son. I am holding him by his hair. Because I control him. He's my son. Really amazing. Moses, this ancient narrative in Deuteronomy 17 would have blown people's minds. Not the part about God choosing the king, a choice of the God, the deity, but everything else that follows it. Let's go through it quickly. Look, not a foreigner. Now listen carefully. He's not talking about ethnicity. He's talking about covenantal identity. And you've got to understand this because 
we think that only Jews have a right to the covenant. But there weren't any Jews then. There was only one of 12 tribes that was Jewish. The rest of the tribes were of other ethnicities at this time. Israel was multi-ethnic. Okay? And so, and not only that, they had absorbed people into their sphere of anybody that believed. In fact, some of the Egyptians converted to the religion of Yahweh. And then when they invaded Canaan, the story of Rahab is amazing because Rahab and all the Canaanites were under the harem. They were under the judgment of God and they were all to be slaughtered. And what does uh, the two spies tell Joshua? And Joshua says, let's rescue Rahab. And what else? Everybody that belongs to her. Every one of her relatives. Maybe Rahab actually believed in Yahweh. I mean, I think she probably did, but who knows if Uncle Joe believed in Yahweh. But as long as he was in the house at night with her, he was protected. This is profound. This is amazing. Not a foreigner. Their their identity was in the covenant community, not ethnicity. And this produced a culture, and if you know anything about the history of, the, of Israel and Judah and, and, the, and the, later the Jews themselves, there was a culture of resistance that is really quite remarkable. They resisted everybody. They resisted the Assyrians. They resisted the Babylonians. They resisted the Medo-Persians. They resisted the Seleucids, the, uh, the Greeks that came in, Antiochus uh, IV, they resisted them. That's the story of the Maccabees all dying. The massacre of the Maccabees. And them overthrowing the Greeks. The, all of that is a, a culture of resistance against any monarch whose allegiance was not to God Himself, to the Lord Himself. This is important, folks. He was not to acquire. You know, they even didn't like Herod. You know, we think that Herod was a Jewish king. Do you know, do you know what tribe Herod was from? Does anybody know? Class? Who? No, he was not a Hasmat. He was an Edomite. He was a descendant of Esau. His mother was a Jew. But he was an Edomite. And that was bad. Bad. And the pious Jews didn't like Herod. And John the Baptist criticized his sons. And what happened to him? Off with his head. Literally. There's a an aversion, if you will, for the people of God to be ruled by anybody other than the legitimate king. Has nothing to do with ethnicity, has nothing to do with anything like that. It has everything to do with the covenantal identity of that king, which you're going to see. Not a foreigner. He was not to acquire horses. This would have shocked and amazed everybody. It should still shock and amaze us today, but 
I'm not sure why it doesn't. Not to acquire horses and don't go to Egypt for horses. What he's talking about, it's not this king, my king, is not to rule by military power or by geopolitical alliances. You don't go back to Egypt. Egypt was the great power. You're not to go back and make an alliance with Egypt in any way, shape, or form because they will bring you into slavery again. Don't go back that way. They were warned repeatedly. Don't go that way and don't go to the east because that's no good. Stay here and trust me. And don't trust your horses. Don't trust your military might. They were not to acquire many wives lest their heart turn away. In other words, by having lots of wives, they had lots of children. And by having lots of children, they got lots of land. And by having lots of land, they had lots of money. And by having lots of money, their heart would slowly slip away. They couldn't trust their military. They couldn't trust their geopolitical alliance. It couldn't be in their familial structure, it couldn't be social, culture, couldn't be cultic, it couldn't be worship. You can't just absorb the gods of the countries around you and expect for me to bless you. No, you can't be like that. This would have rocked everybody's world. And Moses was probably thinking, I am in trouble for even mentioning this, but I got to do it. I mean, the Lord's telling me to do it. And not excessive silver, gold, financial Financial power, what does financial power lead to? It leads to arrogance, it leads to pride, it leads to entitlement. I'm, I have, I deserve. In other words, the more you have, the more you believe you deserve. Look, folks, all you have to do is look at our culture in the United States today. The rich, these, who are the Kardashians? What have they ever done? They've never built anything. They're just famous for, for being famous. That's what they say. I mean, it, it, it's nothing. It's smoke and mirrors and plastic surgery and cosmetics. And they're entitled. I mean, people, people fawn, they bow down, they get on their knees to be around the celebrities of our world. Here's what one Old Testament professor said, a scholar, very interesting. Eventually the nation would develop a monarchical government. Talking about Israel, the king was to be a native Israelite, chosen by the Lord himself. He was to adopt, listen to this, this is mind-blowing. He was, it was mind-blowing then, it's mind-blowing now, I'm going to try to make the point. He was to adopt a humble and dependent lifestyle contrary to that of the neighboring kings. He wasn't supposed to be like them. This would preclude the amassing of horses as a sign of military might or the multiplying of wives as an entanglement of international political alliances. Finally, here it is. He was to trust the Lord and seek to live by the principles outlined in the very book of the covenant, the book of Deuteronomy. The king was supposed to make a copy of this book and have it with him all the time. 
Wow. What is wrong with a monarch? Their hearts eventually become corrupt. You know the Roman emperors, you know Rome started out as a republic. You all know that, right? Started out as a republic. But the ruling classes were rich and powerful men. Normal men. I mean, there was no women in the Senate. So right away you start to see a problem. Or maybe not. <laughs> Ladies, I'm just kidding with you. The Roman emperors eventually declared themselves to be gods. And that didn't happen until really later, even later than Jesus. Okay? Very interesting. Napoleon. You all know the story of Napoleon. The French Revolution. What did the French Revolution did? They cast out. They threw out all the aristocracy. They killed them all. The guillotine. And then what did they do? Napoleon, this great general, he comes in and he's a great general and he's a Republican. Not Republican like Republic. No, never mind. He's not that kind of... He's a, he's a representative government type of guy. But what did he do after a while? I'm the emperor. And Israel and Judah is nothing but a sad history of kings who were chosen by God, degenerating, starting with David, this beloved of God, this, the, the apple of God's heart. You know, he kills one of his most loyal commanders, military commanders, and steals his wife. Crazy. Crazy stuff. And this was the best king. It goes downhill from there. Solomon, he had 700 concubines and how many wives? 300. A thousand. Had nothing to do with sex, by the way. It had everything to do with power. He married Pharaoh's daughter to make a political alliance exactly breaking chapter 17. Breaking the law. And today, I think we, we have a great system, folks. America, probably amazing. I mean, no, when, they, when they write the history books in a thousand years from now, and they go, well, America, wow, it was really great for a while. But what happened to America? What happened? Well, what happened was, from the very beginning people began to accrue power, alliances, money, and the ruling classes oppress those underneath them. Now, we still have some safeguards. Thank God we can resist them a little bit. We have term limits, or at least we hopefully we have... We do have term limits. You know what it's called, right? Death. Eventually, these guys die. Thank God. And they go away. But, you know, we try for term limits. We, we've tried putting in, uh, you know, anti-corruption laws, uh, you know, enfranchisement rights. We've tried to extend the franchise to others, women and, and people of color and marginalized people and even American Indians. They didn't get the right to vote until, you know, the, the 1940s or something. I mean, you can go through and look at all of these things. Very interesting. But Lord Acton, very famous quote, wrote in a letter to Bishop Mandel Creighton, 1887, you all know the quote, it's very famous, power tends to corrupt. 
Absolute power corrupts what? Absolutely. But listen to the rest of the quote. I didn't know this. Great men are almost always evil men. Because greatness by its very nature has a seductive and corrupting and corrosive effect. No matter who you are, whether you're David, Solomon, Marcus Aurelius, Alexander, power tends to have a corrosive effect. All the time, almost 100% of the time, in fact, I would say 100% of the time, we just don't see it. Except for once. Once in all the sad, sad history of this planet and its kings and its rulers and its congressmen and its presidents and its governments and everybody that's ever had power, every president of a corporation, every head of a family, doesn't matter who it is, whether it's Don Corleone or Chuck Isaac. We take authority and we take power and we misuse it. Except for once. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of the book of this law. And it shall be with him. And he will read it all the days of his life. To fear the Lord his God by keeping it and by doing it. Jesus was able to say, which of you? He pointed to the crowd of Pharisees, of religious leaders, of the power brokers. Which of you convicts me of sin? I did not come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. I always do what my Father chooses. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When the Father speaks, I speak. that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Folks, The message of Christmas. If there's a message in Christmas, this is at the top of its list of messages. Something is ruling your heart and my heart. It's ruling it today, right now. Something's got you. And something will rule you. 
And all of Scripture from Moses on down to today to Jesus Himself is saying, Choose! You choose! Who and what will rule your heart? And at Christmas, we say this, Behold your King in all our trials, born to be our friend. He knows our need, our weakness. He is no stranger. Behold your King, before Him lowly bend, fall on your knees. Hear the angel voices. O night divine, O holy night, the night that Christ the King was born. Will you trust Him? Will you give your heart to Him this Christmas? I pray you'll do it. I really do. Father, help us, please, we pray, to make Jesus Christ our King. Something's got us. Something's ruling us. And I pray that each of us will choose Jesus the King to rule our hearts because He will do it justly and fairly. He, this great King, said, Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Learn of me. I'm meek. I'm lowly. And you'll find rest for your souls. Father, please help us. Help us to trust Him. We pray that in His name. Amen.